Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread, and as the title suggests, it concerns the daily bread petition from the Lord's Prayer. This little petition follows immediately after the august opening petitions, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it seems that Jesus is taking us from the sublime to the mundane, from the spiritual to the carnal, from great things we must pray for to something relatively unimportant we are permitted to pray for. But this is just another area in which our thoughts are not God's thoughts. We are the ones who have divided the world up into spiritual and physical, not God. We are the ones who bemoan our physical needs and dependence, not God. God is the one who created us not only to live by every word that proceeds from his mouth, but also to need daily bread. This is a glory to God, and it should be a glory to us. After all, our first parents were just as dependent on God in the Garden of Eden, and we will be just as dependent on God in the fully perfected new heavens and new earth. Our complete dependence on God spiritually and physically is a function of our being His creatures and His children, not a result of the fall. Indeed, sin came into the world when man sought to be independent of God. This is just another way in which by putting His prayer in our mouths, Jesus is not only changing the world, He is changing us. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning we're continuing consideration of the Lord's Prayer, and we come to the second major petition, because hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven is really three different ways of saying the same thing. And so we come to the second petition today, which is in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. So let us read then, we'll read verse 9 to pick up the introduction to the prayer, and then verse 11. This is the word of God. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our consideration of His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Lord Jesus taught us how to pray and gave us this prayer. And we know that uh, this is a short little prayer, but we know there's a lot going on here. And we pray that You would teach us by Your Holy Spirit that we would pray and be as You would have us to be as Your children. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this little petition, Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread, it's certainly the most simple and the most mundane request in the Lord's Prayer. But there is much more going on here than meets the eye. And when we read this little petition, we tend to have a number of misconceptions. Because this one follows immediately after these grand, august Uh, petitions, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's surrounded by petitions in the Lord's Prayer, all of which are overtly spiritual. 
the prayer for God's kingdom, for His will to be done. It's followed by forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Everything in the Lord's prayer is overtly spiritual except for this little request. Give us this day our daily bread. And so we tend to think then that we have moved from the spiritual to the carnal, from that which is really important to that which is not so important, from the things that we must pray for to something that we're permitted to pray for. We're tempted to view this as something that if it belongs in the Lord's Prayer at all, it belongs at the back of the bus, the least important. But we have to remember that this is Christ's prayer. He died so we could pray this prayer, including this little petition. And he put this petition, give us this day our daily bread. He's the one who put it where it is. And he is commanding us to pray for our daily bread, just as surely as he commanded us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we need to observe where Jesus put it, and we need to be instructed See, Jesus understood, even if we don't, that if we don't have daily bread, we won't be doing much of anything at all. We won't be serving God very long. We won't be forgiving our neighbor. We won't be overcoming the evil one. We won't even be praying the, very, the Lord's Prayer, at least not on earth, where the real battleground is. We have to have our daily bread. And implicitly, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're offering ourselves to the service of God. We're offering ourselves to the service of his kingdom. And we're offering ourselves for the service of his will. And so, really, the next logical thing to ask for is what we need in order to do all that. So this little request is not something that's permitted It's something that is necessary. It's not something that's tacked on or just tossed in. It is something that flows from the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. So then what are we praying for when we pray for daily bread? Well, if you said daily bread to any first century Hebrew, they would immediately think of one thing, and that is manna. They hear daily bread, it's an allusion to the manna that God gave Israel in the desert. But God gave them much more than manna. He also gave them water from the rock. He gave them quail from the sky. He gave them clothes and shoes that did not wear out. He gave them feet that did not swell. In other words, he gave them good health. As it says in Nehemiah chapter 9, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. In other words, God hovered over his children and daily in an obviously miraculous way, he took care of all of their basic physical needs. So it's not just daily bread we're praying for. We're praying for all of this. We're praying for God to hover over us and to take care of all of our uh, physical needs. But there's even more to it than that. When we look in the Old Testament, we see that there is a progression to daily bread. Uh, 
just as there was a progression to the manna. One of the interesting things about manna is that for 40 years, God gave his children manna in the wilderness. But then as soon as he brought them from the desert into the land of Canaan, which they have been waiting for, we're told expressly that the manna stopped. And so we have to wonder, what, are they going backwards? Is this a bad thing? Well, what we see is that no, it is not a bad thing. It is a move from immaturity to maturity. And we see that God is teaching his children things when he uh, deals with them out in the desert. Uh, he talks about this in, in Nehemiah 9 and also in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It tells us that God was testing his children to see what was in their heart and that he was also teaching them things that they needed to know. And so we see that he treats them as little children when he takes them out into the desert, which means he needs to teach them some important things. He needs to transform their hearts from a pagan way of looking at the world and a pagan way of looking at themselves and of looking at God. And he needs to tune their hearts to see the world as it really is, as God has created it, to understand God the way He is, to understand their relationship with God. And so He needs to disabuse them of the naturalistic myth that is not just prevalent in our day, but has pervaded the world ever since the fall. All of the, um, uh, many of the ancient uh, religions, even though they believed in many gods, when you really look at their religions, whether it's the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans or the Babylonians and so forth, all of their gods were simply higher powers within the cosmos. They were not the sovereign, autonomous, omnipotent, omnipresent God, triune God of the scriptures. They were simply higher powers within this closed system called the cosmos. It was the cosmos that was ultimately eternal and self-existent and self-contained. And so um, you can appeal to these various higher powers, but ultimately uh, there is an incipient naturalism that is present. And it's interesting to note that in, in the higher circles today of uh, naturalistic sciences and the higher circles of physics, and this is being kept very quiet because they don't want people to know this, there is a turn among some of the highest atheistic physicists in the world to a, a, a return to a cosmological spirituality because they understand that this uh, naturalistic universe that they have created in, to, in order to lock God out. What they've actually done, as they're coming to realize, is they've locked themselves in. They've locked themselves into a little panic room that has no, no doorknob on the inside. And they're running out of explanations. And so they're going to have to turn, return to the ancient concept of a deified cosmos. The cosmos itself is God. And so when we live in this world, in our fallenness, because God is so gracious to us, we have a tendency to think that things just come, or that they come by so-called natural laws. Now, there is a there's a Christian concept of natural law by which we mean something that God does every day without fail. 
You know, something that goes up must come down. Why? It's because that's what God said, and that's what he makes happen. And we have to live in this world. He knows that, and so he makes it happen regularly. But there's another pagan concept of natural law, which says it just happens that way. And so God needed to teach his children that they don't just get food. They don't just get water. They don't just get clothing. They don't just get health. These aren't things that just happen. They're not something that they can manipulate or bring about by their own power. He needed to teach them the real nature of life, which is, as James boils it down to a succinct statement, he says, every good thing is the gift of your Father who is in heaven. That's a paraphrase. That's basically what he says. He says, every good thing comes from one place. It comes from God. And every good thing has one nature to it, and that is the nature of a gift. It is not something you create yourself. It is not something you earn in any real sense of the word. It is not something you commandeer. It's not like pirate's booty, and you take it, and you got it by your own strength. Every good thing comes from God, and it has the nature of a gift. And so the way God teaches that to little children is that he makes them obviously dependent. He puts them out in the desert where all of the normal things that they could do to provide food and clothing and shelter and these kind of things are all gone. There's nothing. There's no food. There's no water. There's no shelter. There's no nothing. And they have to receive it from the hand of God. And he makes it clear to them that it is from his hand because he gives it to them miraculously, by which I mean that he makes the miracle obvious. Because truly, everything is a miracle. When we have food on our plates three times a day at a minimum, for most of us, it's more than three times a day, that's just as much of a miracle as if God just made it appear. Okay? It's just as much of a miracle. But when we say miracle, we're saying that God interrupts the normal way that he does things, that he does it in an obvious way that makes it sh- that it's from his hand. So God gives them bread from the sky. Every day he gives them bread from the sky. He gives them water from a rock. And we have the time that is recorded, but when we look at some of the other places in Scripture that talk about the time in the desert, it seems that many occasions God gives them water to the rock uh, from a rock. We're told that he kept their sandals and their clothes from wearing out for 40 years. I don't know who would want to wear the same sandals or clothes for 40 years, but he kept them from wearing out because they had no other means of provision. Not only that, But we're told he kept their feet from swelling. You're walking for 40 years. He kept their feet from swelling. I can't walk for half a day without my feet swelling. And so, um, which means he miraculously sustains their bodies and their health. And he keeps doing this every single day to make it clear to them, this is from me. You are my children. Every good thing comes from me. Every good thing is a gift. Because children have to learn this. They have to learn the true nature of the world, which is as God was teaching them. But that's not where he leaves his people. He wants to bring them from childhood where he has to spell these things out in big, bold primary colors and big, bold print like the big E on the eye chart, and he has to make it very clear to them again and again and again. He wants to bring them to maturity. 
And maturity does not look like manna every day, water from the rock every day. What maturity looks like is when he brought them into the land. And he gives them nations. He gives them kingdoms. He gives them houses they didn't build. He gives them vineyards they didn't plant and fields. And he makes them rich and he makes them fat and he makes them wealthy. And what he is teaching them, because he warns them, he says, when I do all this for you, when I do all this for you, I don't want you, your heart to be lifted up within you. And you begin to think that this is because of you. And you say to yourself in your heart, my power and my strength have gotten me all of these things. And you forget the Lord your God. He says, you shall remember... The Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth that He may establish His covenant. In other words, His promises. So immaturity is where God has to make dependence clear. He has to make clear where every good thing comes from. He has to make clear that every good thing is a gift. Maturity is where God takes the children, grows them up, and gives us the power to get wealth. In other words, He involves us in the process. He sends us into the kingdom. He gives us nations. He gives us land. He gives us jobs. He gives us money and houses and wealth and good things. He gives us wine and oil and bread and so many uh, good things. But we are to remember if we keep our maturity that it is God who gives us the power to get wealth. Now, we have a tendency as sinners to want to garble all of this process. We have a tendency as sinners, on the one hand, to want to glorify the childhood stage. Now you can see this in the Gospels when Jesus fed the 5,000. There's a long discussion and disagreement that Jesus has with the multitude after he feeds the 5,000 in the Gospel of John. Because they say to him, Moses gave our fathers manna in the desert. In other words, Jesus has just fed with a few little loaves and a, and, and a few fish well over 5,000 uh, people. And what they're saying is, we want you to keep doing it. The kingdom is here. Yeah, this is what it's all about. We want you to feed us every day or three times a day. This is manna. This is what we want. Jesus is basically saying to them, that's not spiritual maturity. Your fathers had these things and they died in the wilderness because they got all of this garble. They didn't really understand what God was doing. And you don't understand what God's doing either if that's what you want to return to. So when God takes his people in any particular generation or any particular culture and returns us in his judgment to a situation where we are dependent in an obvious, blatant way upon God's miraculous provision for daily basic needs on a day-by-day basis, what that means is that big picture God is saying to his people, you have no understanding. You're like little children, and I'm going to have to take you back to the first things. I'm going to have to teach you once again the real nature of the world, of our dependence on God, of His love and His care for us, 
of our appropriate gratitude to him and our purpose in serving him. He has to take us back, reteach us those lessons so that he can again bring us to maturity and call us to serve him. So what this means is that when we live in a, in a country like America today, which is big picture, we have long since been given so much abundance. Uh, wealth, technology, and technology is really a form of wealth. Just think about a dishwasher or a washing machine or a dryer or a vacuum cleaner and think how many servants it would take to do that. So technology is a form of great wealth. When we live in a country like ours and we have all these things, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be mature and we're supposed to understand that it is God who gives us the power to get wealth. And he gives us this so that we might be his sons and daughters in maturity and serve him in establishing his kingdom. But we have a tendency, like America has done, to turn away from these truths and to forget and to think it is our power who has given us all of this wealth. We think it's the genius of America who has given us all of these things. And so what it means is that unless God grants us repentance, that he will have to take us and he will have to take his people in America back to the little child stage where he makes it clear to us once again that we are truly dependent upon him, and every good thing is his gift. So, what are we praying for then when we pray for daily bread? Well, the petition for daily bread is a summary way of asking for all of our necessities for life as God has created it so that we may serve him. It includes food, shelter, clothing, medicine, transportation, money so that we can purchase them, a job so that we can earn the money. We're praying for medical services, money, jobs. We're praying against poverty and unemployment and against government policies which promote or prolong them. All of that is what we're praying when we pray for our daily bread. And in asking God for daily bread, we're also confessing several things. We're confessing our absolute joyful, our eager dependence on God our Father. We're confessing God's absolute joyful, eager faithfulness to provide all that we need and far more. We're confessing God's intent to take us from immaturity where we need to see basic necessities miraculously from God's hand day by day to maturity where he gives us the power to get wealth as a part of establishing his covenant that is, of bringing in his kingdom and establishing his will. And we are to rejoice over all this, for this is a glory. You see, even our dependence on God is a glory. Having basic needs and being dependent on God to meet them is not the result of the fall. Let me say that again. Having basic needs and being dependent on God to meet them is not a result of the fall. I mean, as though we will have no needs after the great resurrection. You realize that after the resurrection, in the perfected new heavens and new earth, we will be just as dependent on God in that perfect world as we are in this fallen world. Now, there will be differences, obviously. The effects of sin will be eradicated. But the extent of our dependence is a function 
of creaturehood, not of fallenness. Before the, the fall, let me ask you this. Before the fall, in the Garden of Eden, could Adam and Eve have prayed, give us this day our daily bread? Yes, they could. They needed daily bread. Could Adam and Eve have prayed, lead us not unto temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? Yes, they could. They had all of those needs. The only thing in the Lord's prayer that Adam and Eve had no need to pray was, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. All the rest of the Lord's prayer, they could pray. So our basic physical needs and our spiritual needs are there by God's design, and they are very good, right? Because God made everything very good. So our dependence is not evil. Dependence is not evil as long as it is not misplaced. Now, when you have cultures and when you have uh, peoples who turn away from God you have dependence become misplaced. And that is something that we see in our society today. You see the central government trying to uh, create the kind of dependence which we're only supposed to have to God our Father. Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven for these things, not to the central government. Now, let me add this. God has created us in this world even before the fall so that we have, you might say, mediated dependence. In other words, God creates us absolutely dependent on him. That's a function of creaturehood, not fallenness. But he also, by his own design, creates us in a subordinate way dependent on what? He creates us dependent on one another. In the covenant community, in the church, we are dependent on one another. We need one another. We're not supposed to exist by ourselves. He creates us dependent on one another within the family. He created Adam and Eve to be husband and wife, and he created them to need one another in a legitimate way, to be dependent on one another. And he created us, I believe, to be dependent on one another in a legitimate way in a civic community. In other words, even had there been no fall we're still going to have to decide whether to drive on the right side of the road or the left. We're still going to have to decide where red means stop or go. Those things have nothing to do with fallenness. And so in all of these ways, God creates us to have a subordinate dependence. In other words, our legitimate dependence on one another in the family of God, in the the nuclear family, and in a a, uh, godly civic community is a good thing. They're all reflections or subordinations of our ultimate dependence on God himself. But you run into problems when you either have a family, or you could even have a church, or you could have a civic government begin to step out of its proper place and to claim for itself a power which God didn't give it. And whenever either family or church or civic community steps out of its proper place and begins to claim for itself power and authority that God didn't give it, it will, also, it will always try to create an unbiblical dependence on itself, all right? Which also means that it will begin to deny, downplay, or to eradicate other intermediate dependences which God legitimately created, like family, like church, 
like local community and that kind of thing. And that is precisely the manifestation that we see in our culture today with the central government. Notice how the policies of the central government try more and more and more to downplay and to make insignificant uh, our relations to one another within the family or our relations to one another in the local church or even in local communities. Those are downplayed and faded out almost to eradication so that the fundamental relationship in our country becomes the relationship between the central government and the citizen. Everything else is way, way, way down the line in terms of importance. And in order to foster that, the policies try to make people more and more and more directly dependent on the central government till it gets to the point where effectively as a society we're not praying as Jesus taught us to pray to the heavenly father give us this day our daily bread but we look to Washington DC and say give us this day our daily bread please pretty please and we will give you our freedom in order to make that happen And so this is the the way it works. But what we need to recognize, though, is that the fundamental being dependent is not an evil thing. We're completely dependent. And and then when the resurrections come, all sin is gone. We will be just as dependent then as we are today. And so we want to be careful that we're the biblical and where dependence is placed and how it is placed. But on our basic dependence toward God, we do not want to resent it as though it's some form of sin or weakness. We don't want to bemoan our basic physical and spiritual needs. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we groan to be delivered from sin and death, and so does the whole creation. But we do not bemoan our creaturehood. We do not bemoan our dependence any more than the creation does. You see, to be God's creature is to be blessed. To be God's creature is to be blessed, save for sin alone. And sin is not found in creaturehood or independence. Rather, the opposite. Sin is to be found in a proclamation of independence and in a denial of creaturehood. Think about it. What is involved in sin? Was sin found in Adam and Eve confessing their dependence on God and their creaturehood? Or was it found in an act of independence and a functional denial that they were God's creatures? So you see then that acknowledging our creaturehood and our dependence is a step toward God, a step toward blessing. A step toward renewing the world. A step toward the kingdom of God. We might even say that confessing our creaturehood gladly and confessing our dependence gladly, which is what we're doing in this petition, is the first step. It's the first step that any sinner makes toward God when they come to Christ. When a sinner turns to Christ and calls out to Christ... Okay, what are they in essence confessing and saying? They're saying, I am dependent. 
I am your creature. I am dependent. I cannot help myself. I can only cry out to you. I must look to you. So this really is the first step. So this prayer, this little prayer for daily bread, we need to see this is not the prayer of beggars. It's the prayer of sons and daughters. Think about it. What's the difference between a beggar and a son or a daughter? It's not dependence. The son or the daughter is just as dependent as the beggar. There's no one more dependent than a little baby. Can't do anything. Everything must be done for it. It is dependent completely for all of its daily needs. So the difference between a beggar and a child is not dependence. Nor is the difference desert. It's not a matter of what they deserve. Particularly not when the children have themselves been redeemed and adopted into God's family by Christ's death on the cross. So as God's children, we don't deserve any more than any other sinner. So when you think about it, the little child does not deserve any more than a beggar. The difference between beggars and children is this, inheritance. Inheritance. Inheritance is not something that's deserved. It's something that is bestowed. We have an ownership interest in the kingdom. And we have a call and promise of sharing in the royal character and glory. Inheritance is the difference between a son and a daughter or a beggar. And this is what Jesus died to bring us to do. Jesus didn't die to make us independent. He died to bring us back to a recognition and a rejoicing in our dependence on God the Father as His children. He, he died to forgive our sins, but not that alone. To bring us, to adopt us back into God's family. That we might be recipients, as it says in uh, Peter, of, of His divine nature and that we might share in all of his blessings and glory. So God has withheld nothing from us in Christ. He has given everything to his Son, and in Christ he has given everything to us. And that's the point that Paul keeps making in Galatians and Romans, for example. He says that in Christ we are God's children, and in Christ we are God's heirs. That's inheritance. We inherit with Christ all that he inherits. Well, how shall we then live? What shall we do in light of these things? Well, Jesus' application here has to do with prayer. It has to do with how we pray. And so our first application needs to be in how we pray. We need to pray this prayer with understanding, and we need to pray it in all of its fullness. We need to pray it reflecting on how everything in your life, you are completely dependent on God. So as you go through this week, think about all the little things that you do every day. And reflect on the fact that when you go to work a job, that's God's gift. It's God's gift that there is such a thing as jobs. It's God's gift that you have that job. That paycheck is a good thing, and it's God's gift to you. Reflect the fact that in every area of your life, you're completely dependent on Him... And that's not a bad thing. It's very good, and God delights to bless you. 
Think about that whether you're in school, things that you deal with in your family, things that you deal with in your church family, the way that you think about your country, the way that you vote, the way that you pray, and all of these things, we are completely dependent upon God and do this. This week, rejoice in your dependence. Don't bemoan it. Don't resent it. Rejoice in your dependence on God the Father and pray accordingly and live accordingly. Now, if we do this, it's something that will affect everything that we do. It will change our attitude about everything we do and it will change in many subtle but significant ways everything we do. When we confess our dependence on God, give us this day our daily bread.